Would you please open with me to Revelation 22? I went back and forth in studying this over the last several weeks. Because verses 1 through 5 fit more with chapter 21. Obviously, the chapter breaks themselves are not inspired. They were added much later. And yes, we probably could have done all of chapter 22 today. But there's a lot in these first five verses. So we're going to handle these five verses together and then do the rest of the book, which is the epilogue, next Sunday, Lord willing. But we've made it to the last chapter of Revelation, last chapter of the Bible, the way we have it laid out. And I'm going to read the five verses for us. Would you please stand and I'll read? And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we are humbled and excited to be able to approach your word this morning. Because of what this represents, it represents those who believe in you being able to dwell with you and even see you face to face and reign with you for eternity. Lord, I pray that that would excite our hearts this morning. That if it doesn't excite, excite our hearts, that you would show us what is wrong in our hearts. That we would look forward to the opportunity to be with you for eternity. To see this river, to see this tree, to experience the blessings that you have for us. Dwelling in your presence. Lord, we need your help this morning. Help to focus, help to prioritize our thinking in order to learn from you, to hear from you. Because we know you're speaking through your word. You've given us this passage by your Holy Spirit. You've given it to us in language that we can understand. But we need your help to understand it, Lord. We need help to apply it. And I ask that you would strengthen me mentally and physically this morning as I speak your word that you would speak through me, that you would use me, that you would speak to each person here, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts that are ready to respond to what you show us from your word. Lord, you've promised that when your word goes forth, it will accomplish what pleases you. It will do the thing that you intend for it to do, what you send it to do. It will not return void. So that's what we're asking for this morning, Lord, that as we study your word together, that it would accomplish your purposes in us and through us. That you would get the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. When we last 
were in Revelation, it was two weeks ago, and I gave you an outline. So what I'm about to show you, you don't have to write down. It's okay. It's not where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. But I want to review and show you how this fits. Because I said that these five verses fit in more with chapter 21. This is how I see it going. We started off with that very broad view. I was thinking about it more this week. I thought, okay, this is the Google Earth back there, the skyline in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 21. And then we have the structure of the city. What's it made of? What size is it? That kind of thing. The splendor. The amazing beauty of it. And then we get to the street level view. That's where we are this morning. We're seeing the street level view of New Jerusalem. Where the throne is, where the river is, where the tree is. Skip Heitzig said, Every city has a main drag, and the New Jerusalem will have one as well. John mentioned it briefly in the last chapter where he told us it was made of pure gold. Like transparent glass. So think of this as eternity's main street. That's what we're looking at in these five verses. We are moving from outside in, and we're going to see that the city is much like a beautiful garden. Babylon, wonder of the ancient world, had its hanging gardens. This is much better than that. This is much like Eden. People who study the Bible have recognized that in, in many ways the idea of a garden brackets the Bible. We're going to spend some time in Genesis 2 and 3 this morning, along with this last chapter of Revelation, and see there is a garden, or at least garden-like features, both places. And maybe back in high school you learned about John Milton writing Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained. Chapter 22 is the regaining of paradise. This is everything that Eden was and more. A perfect place. That's what we see in these verses. So, not to be confusing, but that was your outline that connected it to the last time. Here is the outline for today. There could have been more points, but I wanted to keep it simple. So three ideas. The river of life, the tree of life, and the face of God. The river of life, the tree of life, and the face of God. Those are in verses 1, 2, and 4. But even among those three, which of you, which do you think is the most important? That's easy, right? What? The face of God. So I have one point that if you don't get anything else I say today, please get this. We who are in Christ will see God's face. We who are in Christ will see God's face. We read that thing, oh, that'll be great. No. This is amazing. This is wonderful. This is being in God's presence for eternity and enjoying close, intimate fellowship with Him. That's what we're talking about today. You can see there that I have Psalm 17, 15 as a reference. Here's that verse. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. We'll come back to that verse a little bit later on. But David says... I will see your face in righteousness. He is looking forward to it. We should be looking forward to it. It is a wonder, if not the wonder of heaven, the new Jerusalem. So let's go back to verse 1 together. We'll work through this, a phrase, a verse at a time, 
Now we're going to deal first with the river of life. As I mentioned a minute ago, there were no chapter breaks. This would have been a scroll that John was writing. So there's no break between chapter 21 and chapter 22. The description continues and gets even a little more specific and describes a city that is a temple that is a garden. There's a sense in which it's all of those things. Verse 1, And he showed me, who's he? The angel. Showed John a pure river of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The river of life. Back in chapter 21, God had said that anyone who's thirsty could come and drink of the water of life. And now, what do we see? A clear river that is flowing with the water of life. It flows through the city. This is a picture of the abundant blessings and joy of heaven. Last week, some of you don't remember last week, that's okay, we did a scripture reading. Remember the ladies read and the men read and we did Psalm 46. Don't expect you to remember that. Probably don't remember this verse, but this is straight from last week. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Psalm 46, verse 4. A river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. That's what it's talking about. A holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. It's talking about the New Jerusalem. It's a prophetic description. So the water of life, as we talked about in our scripture reading today, in John 4 and John 7, it's a picture of eternal life. So when Jesus spoke with the woman at the well, he talked about the water being living water, eternal life, the fullness of life that we have in God, the eternal blessings that we have in him. And then chapter 7, we read that also a little while ago, that the Holy Spirit is likened to a river. So as we read, where's this river coming from? The throne of God and of the Lamb. And I didn't point this out two weeks ago when we were here, but we keep having references to God and the Lamb and God and the Lamb. Rightly so. But do we not worship a triune God who exists one God in three persons? We don't read a lot about the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation and in the New Jerusalem. haven't had an explicit reference to him, but I believe this may be showing how the Holy Spirit is involved. He is the abundance. He is the satisfaction. He is perhaps pictured as this river of living water. John Phillips said, no doubt he is the reality behind the symbol. Because let's face it, this may or may not be a river like we think of it. Because we read last time there's no more sea. At least not how we think of it. There's no water cycle as we think of it. We don't know exactly what this is going to be like, but the best John can describe it, the best we can understand it, is it's a river. It's a river with pure, clear water. And the only kind of river that can come from the throne of God and of the Lamb is a pure one. Describing God's holiness. That's the river of life. There's a river of life. There's also a tree of life. Now, one question that people commonly ask about heaven is, will we eat in heaven? And I don't know whether it's ever explicitly stated, but it's implied. Jesus said that he will eat. 
the Passover meal that he was making into the Lord's Supper, that he will eat this feast again in my Father's kingdom. Here, we have some fruit mentioned on this tree of life. And it's not stated that we eat the fruit, but it seems like we can eat the fruit. So somebody said the best answer is that we will be able to eat, but we'll not have to eat. We don't have to eat to live. We don't have to rest the way we do now. We don't have to take a nap. don't have to sleep at night. It will be different. And yet some things will be similar. Verse 2 says this. In the middle of its street. Middle of its street. What's it? The river. So in the middle of the river, or in the street, the main street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. David Guzik said it's a little hard to picture this landscaping. Because somehow this tree is in the middle of the street with the river flowing down the street and the tree is also on either side of the river. So perhaps it's a really big tree. Perhaps it's a grove of trees. We don't know exactly. Because the point is not what it looks like in terms of a tree as we think of it, or a river or a street. The point is the tree of life is growing. And what is the tree of life? It is also a symbol of eternal life. The tree of life appears ten times in the Bible. It's three times in the book of Genesis. It's four times in Proverbs and then three times here in Revelation. So we have beginning, middle, and end. The tree of life, as we think of it, let's go back to Genesis. If you would turn to Genesis 2, I'm going to read some verses from Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. They're the references for what I'm going to read. Genesis 2, I'm going to start in verse 8. So we've had all of chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 to tell us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? He created on day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5. On day 6, he created people. And he created them and put them in a garden and gave them a job to do. So that's where we are in the story. Genesis 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. And a second tree that we care about, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there are two trees. The tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, let's get down to there. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. What is death? Death is separation from God. So what he's telling them is, if you disobey this one rule, it will result in separation from me. That's what he's telling them. And we're not going to read the serpent came, tempted Eve. Adam was probably there right with her. And they both sinned. She was deceived by the serpent. She gave to Adam. Adam said, sure, why not? I'll eat it too. And they both broke the one rule God had given them. And as a result, God cursed the serpent. God cursed the ground. And he had some disciplinary punishments, I'm not going to use the word curse, for Adam and Eve. 
And one of them was that they could not be in the garden anymore. And more specifically, they couldn't have access to the tree of life anymore. That's in chapter 3. Turn your page if you need to. I'm in chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God would not allow them to eat from the tree of life any longer. Implication, as long as you eat from that tree of life, you have eternal life. Was God being mean? One person says that. Two, another person shaking her head. Was God just being mean? No. He couldn't allow them to continue in a sinful state and live forever that way. That would be a punishment of itself. He denied them access to the tree of life so that they would not go on living perpetually, eternally in a cursed world. It was merciful of God to deny them access to the tree of life. The references in Proverbs, as I read them, seem to be figurative. So we don't have the idea of here's this tree that we could see or that we could pick fruit off. We don't have that from Genesis all the way to Revelation. All of a sudden, we get in the last chapter of the Bible, and here's this tree of life. shows up again. God had kept them, and all of us, of course, since then, from the tree of life so that we would not live forever in a sinful state. But now, we are in a place in time. What we're reading of this vision that God gave to John, heaven and earth have passed away. Sin is gone. All sin has been judged. On the cross, those who believe in Jesus for salvation, our sin was judged there. It will never be brought up again. Those who refused to believe in Jesus as Savior, they were judged at the great white throne. They were cast into the lake of fire, separated from God forever. And now we have a new heaven and a new earth, and here's the tree of life. Because everyone who's there can eat freely from the tree of life. It bears 12 fruits. This shows the variety. We, we read in the Genesis account of the amazing variety of, in God's creation. And the same thing here. Some sort of tree or multiple trees that produce fruit each month. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were in the eternal state. How can there be months? I don't know if it's the same as our calendar, the way we think of it, but there is some marking of passage of time here. It has to be so that we know, okay, the apples are this month, and the oranges and the peaches or whatever they are. I don't know. I'm not saying those are the fruits. But there seem to be 12 different fruits, and one is available each month. So there are some sort of cycles and seasons or months. Now I read there, at the end of verse 2, it says, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And the first time you read that, you think, why does there need to be healing? Why are there nations? Well, the answer is that the word behind healing is closest to our English word therapeutic. It's therapy is the idea there. That's what we have translated as healing. So there's some way in which these leaves enrich our lives. Tom McCosser said 
They will make our lives full and satisfying. Somebody else compared it to taking super vitamins. That somehow it's going to make our life better. Make us healthier if there can be a better degree of health when you're already in a resurrected body. So we have these first two verses, some really big ideas, don't we? We have the river of the water of life and the tree of life, both of which show us the abundant blessings that are ours in this new heaven and new earth, New Jerusalem. A huge place, a sparkly place, a well-lit place. That's where we are. And you may be thinking, sounds good to me, sign me up. I would like to eat of this special fruit on the tree of life. I would like to be able to drink of this satisfying water anytime I want. Sounds good to me too. But it's not anything that we can do to get us there, is it? There's nothing we can do. It's not by our works. Our only hope to be able to partake of these beautiful, wonderful privileges are Jesus. Our only hope is Jesus. He is our hope in life and death and beyond into eternity. It is through him. He took the penalty for us. He took our sin on him. We will be talking about that in much more detail a couple of weeks from now as we approach the resurrection. We talk about his crucifixion. That he took his sin on himself, our sin on him, so that if we trust in him, we have his righteousness instead of our sin. It covers, it removes, it blots out, it crosses out, it erases. And we have the hope of eternal life, fellowship with him in his presence, with this cool tree and this cool river, both of which offer life abundance in him. Verse 3 says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. No more curse. If you mark in your Bibles, that's a good one to underline. Circle that. No more curse. As I mentioned, back in Genesis chapter 3, the earth has been under a curse since that moment of sin. And God said, cursed is the ground. And this earth remains under that curse. It will actually burn up. It will be passed away like we read at the beginning of chapter 21. But here there is no more curse. What brought a curse? Not a trick question. What brought a curse? Sin. Sin. Thank you. Sin brought a curse. Is there any more sin when we get to this point in the book of Revelation? No. No more sin. No more temptation. No more curse. It's gone. When I say Bible said, guilt, strife, struggle for survival, sickness, sorrow, death, they're all gone. They're wiped out. God will never again have to judge sin because it will not exist in the new heaven and the new earth. And this other statement, his servants shall serve him. Who are his servants? All of us. Believers from all ages. His people will serve him. So if you've ever seen a cartoon or some sort of drawing that shows that we're all going to be angels, first of all, we're not. We're not going to turn into angels. We're not going to have our own cloud or harp or anything else and just kind of sit around and lollygag the rest of eternity. No. There's going to be work for us to do. But it's not going to feel like work. Because remember, part of the curse was that the ground is not going to yield to you. It's going to be hard work. Toil, exactly. That's gone. 
the curse is gone. There's no more curse. So whatever work we will do will be enjoyable. And it don't get hung up on the service aspect either. It will be joy. Amen. It will be wonderful. In fact, that word can be translation as serving through worship or worshiping through service. That's the idea. That's the picture. That we will get to worship and serve, and we'll see later, rule with him. All that will be a delight. It will be wonderful. Somebody said that that curse that's no more also implies distance between God and man. And in the new Jerusalem, that distance will shrink to nothing. So this brings us to our third point for this morning, the face of God, verse 4. It also brings me back to our main idea. We who are in Christ will see God's face. What does verse 4 say? Another good one to underline or circle if you mark in your Bible. Verse 4 says, they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. They, we got to know who they are. They are his servants from verse 3. Look around, look, look at the noun that's closest to that. His servants, his servants shall see his face. John Philip said, here is the climax of everything. They shall see his face. That's it. That is the wonder of eternity, the eternal state. They will see his face. Why is that so special? Why is that so significant? Well, we read in Exodus 33 that no one will see God's face in human flesh and live. And that's a little bit confusing. I got a question from somebody recently about that. Well, didn't Moses get to see God? Yes. And in fact, if you want to complicate it a little bit more, we have phrases that God and Moses met face to face, or even literally lip to lip. The idea is closeness, speaking. Well, how's that work? Moses, while he was still in sinful flesh, before he got his glorified body, could not see physically the glory of God. Why? Because he would have been toast. We cannot see God and live. That's what Exodus 33 tells us. But one of the greatest blessings of the age to come is that God will see us face to face. Think of a world leader, pastor, present, that you like, that you would be honored to be in the presence of. That, that's the idea, that we are going to be able to see him, fellowship with him, talk with him, interact with him on a personal basis. That's the idea of seeing his face. So let's look at a few other verses. I'm bringing this one up again. Psalm 17, 15. I showed this at the beginning. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness, David says. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. I, I will see your face. David was excited about that. He was looking forward to that. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. What's going to happen for them? They will see God. Pure in heart, see God. That was a blessing that Jesus was describing, to be able to see God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, this is Paul writing. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Think about what their mirrors were back then, polished metal. You couldn't see very well. Probably look more like a funhouse, if that. So he's saying, this is dim, this is out of focus. But then, in that time, 
for eternity, we will see God face to face. We will see clearly. We will see 2020. Our Creator, our Savior. 1 John, same author as the book of Revelation, human author. John, in 1 John 3, 2, says, When he is revealed, we shall be like him. We will have our glorified bodies because we, we shall see him as he is. In all his glory. As the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. James Hamilton put it this way. This is a renewal of walking with God in the cool of the day, and then some. It's better than that. This is access to God like no one has ever known. God created people to know Him. And when His purpose has come to pass, we who trust Christ will indeed know Him. Those who trust in Jesus will see His face. This is a previously unexperienced intimacy with God. This is a closeness to God that we cannot even imagine yet. It goes beyond our wildest dreams. Everyone who trusts in Christ will see God's face. Does that excite you this morning? A few of you are smiling. Thank you. A few of you are nodding. If we don't get excited about this, then there's nothing we're going to get excited about. Right. This service should not feel like a funeral this morning, guys. We get to see God face to face. Middle chart for you. Some of us are more visual, so I hope this will help. This is comparing what happened in Genesis 2 and 3 and what happened in, Gen- in Revelation 22, what we're studying today. So in Genesis 2 and 3, I didn't read this verse, but verse 10 says, A river went out of Eden. In Revelation 22, we have a pure river of life. Genesis 2 and 3, we have the tree of life. Revelation 22, the tree of life. In Genesis 3, a curse. In Revelation 22, verse 3, no more curse. Here's what's the same. Revelation 3, 8. They were sent from the presence of the Lord God. Revelation 22, we are welcomed into the presence of the Lord God to see his face, to have an audience with the king. Hebrews says it this way. Now we get to come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. Why? Because we have access through Jesus Christ. He has died. He has risen. He is our Savior, our Rescuer. He is God. And He has made a way for us to come to God to have fellowship with Him. That last statement in verse 4, His name shall be on their foreheads. I don't want to belabor that because we've come across that idea several times in Revelation already. To be stamped, marked in the hand or on the forehead. We are His possession. We belong to Him. Verse 5. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I don't know whether they'll be on motorcycles, but they will reign forever and ever. (laughs) No night there. We've seen that similar phrase before, haven't we? Last chapter. We will get to spend eternity enjoying the radiant splendor of God's glory. Three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, got to go up and see him transfigured. They got a little foretaste, a little idea of what the glorified Christ looks like. Bright. His clothes whiter than any launderer 
could produce here on earth. So that's the glory. That's the brightness. That's the splendor of what we're going to see when we get to see him face to face for all of eternity. And John keeps coming back to this idea to contrast it with our current world and what we understand. There's no night there. There are no hours of darkness. We just hit the date on which there's an equal number of hours of light and darkness. And and it flip-flops from the different seasons. There is no night. In fact, there are a lot of things that there won't be in heaven. So I've made a list from chapters 21 and 22. You don't have to write this down. But these are the, the items that I came up with that are specifically said there is not any of this in heaven. So first off, we have no more seat. That was verse 1 of chapter 21. I believe we have no tears. We can talk more about that if you want to, but I mentioned it says that if there are tears, he'll wipe them away. That's verse 4. I made that great because that was not explicitly stated. No more death, also in verse 4. No sorrow, no crying, no more pain. Does that sound good to anybody? Very good. What else is not in heaven? There's no temple there in verse 22. There's no night. Anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, anything sinful, there's none of that in heaven. We just read today. There's no more curse. We're not finished yet. One more slide. No night, no lamp, no light of the sun. Because there's no need of those things. The Lamb is the light. And we read last time about this city that seems to glow all its own and it's transparent and it's reflective and it's beautiful because he designed it to show his glory and here it is in verse 5 the Lord God gives them light the one who spoke back in Genesis 1 and said let there be light and there was light why? because he is light 1 John 1.5, I made reference to this last time as well. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There's an old hymn that says, Everlasting light and life he freely gives. And what else does it say there? They, who's they? His servants, his people. They shall reign forever and ever. So earlier it said, they shall serve him. His people will serve him. But we're not just servants. That might seem to us in in this world, at least, to be menial. That'd be a bummer to be a servant forever. Oh no, it's not just that. Those same people who are servants, we are kings and queens with him. And that seems to be what he designed originally. Adam and Eve were the crowning point of his creation. And he was telling them, reign over what I have created. And here we are, finally, at the end of the Bible, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. And what are we doing? We're reigning with him. How long? Long time. Forever and ever. No end. It's an eternal reign. main idea we who are in Christ will see God's face please don't let that be something that, oh yeah that's nice no that's the point we have access to God we have fellowship and intimacy with God 
that we can't even imagine right now. And that's what we have to look forward to. If we're in Christ, we can look forward to that for eternity. So basic questions. If you've never put your faith in Christ, then that's my question for you. Will you see his face? I suppose you could say that everyone will see his face, but some will see it when they're at the great white throne. And they will be separated from him and not see his face forever. So are you in Christ? What does that mean to be in Christ? It means to believe on him as the one and only Savior. Not my good works, not my church attendance, not the prayers that I prayed, not the pilgrimages that I went on, not that I was a good person, not that I was polite in traffic. No. I was saying those things are bad. But they don't save me. Only the death of Jesus Christ in my place, substitutionary death, saves me. And he rose again and he is at the right hand of the Father until these events begin to take place. And when they do, they'll happen quickly. So what do we need to do? Believe on him. Call out to him. Cry out and say, save me. I need a rescuer. I have broken your laws. Save me. And he will. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is as easy as that. It's not easy to do necessarily. We have to humble ourselves. We have to come to a place and realize, I need a Savior. But as soon as we believe on him and ask him, he will save. So believers in the room, online, are you ready to see his face? Are you eager to see his face? One way to know that is to apply what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8. Are you pure in heart? Not that it's perfect. It won't be. We live in sinful flesh for now. But you have a heart that's seeking him. You have a heart that is pure, that has confessed any known sin that the Holy Spirit has pointed out. Does that describe you? If so, you're ready, you're eager, you're ready to see him and to enjoy him face to face forever. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Is there anyone here who would say, I don't know for sure that if I died today, I would spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. But I'm burdened about that. I want to know that. Does that describe anyone here this morning? You can make eye contact with me or lift your hand and put it back down. What about believers? Has the Holy Spirit pointed to anything today in your life that you need to change? If you say, yep, I, I know what the Holy Spirit is leading me to do, and by God's grace, I'm going to do it. Pray for me that I would obey. Anybody in that Describe that way this morning. Father, you know our needs. You know our hearts. And you love us. We are accepted and beloved if we are in Christ. We are already seated in the heavenlies with all of these amazing rights and privileges and blessings in Christ. So, Lord, may we make sure this morning that we're in Christ and may we look forward to his appearing and be ready for his appearing because we have a right relationship with you here and we look forward to 
a perfected relationship with you there. We thank you for these words of encouragement from your word. May they make us eager to meet you in the air. May, may they make us eager to see you as you are. In Jesus' name.